I love this work. It's sensuous. It's almost erotic in a way. It transcends language and time. There's no words in the film. And it doesn't really need a theory as a leg to stand on. It really just stands on its own. I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest stories down to earth. Art is something that makes you breathe with a different kind of happiness. That's a quote from the great Bauhaus textile artist Annie Albers that gets shared a lot. I found it when I was looking for material for this podcast on the subject of art and happiness. And I'm not going to lie, I found this quote on one of those websites like brainyquote.com that puts quotes over a picture of a sunset or a petunia or something like that. It's actually a little unclear to me what Albers means. When she says art is a different kind of happiness, I think different from what? I found lots of writers who've used this as an inspirational quote and even one art show that used it as a title, but nobody pointing me to an original source. And I say that because I think this fuzzy status is kind of symbolic when it comes to this subject. The subject of art and happiness seems obvious. Art gives people pleasure. People like art. Looking at art, being around art, talking about art, these things are all part of the definition of a life that is rewarding as far as I am concerned. But if you look closer, the idea that art is happiness becomes a little more slippery because most of what is considered important art is serious. I'd even say that the idea of art and happiness probably sounds lowbrow to a lot of people listening, like a self-help thing. Maybe you immediately think of PBS painter Bob Ross cooing that there are no mistakes, only happy accidents. And I think myself about how comedies rarely make the cut when it comes to awards for best picture or lists of all-time great films. And maybe that's because art that takes emotions that are unpleasant, like fear, loneliness, or anger, and puts them into a form where we are compelled to look at them and to reckon with them, maybe that just seems like more of an impressive artistic feat than art that is just pleasant or amusing. That, after all, is one classical idea of what good art does, the Greek philosopher Aristotle's idea of art as catharsis. Or maybe the idea of happiness in art is considered lowbrow because it's corrupted by commerce. One of my favorite art essays of this last year was Molly Osberg's piece from New York Magazine on art grads using their skills to manufacture art for hotels. The goal, she wrote, is to create something that telegraphs the idea of art without the potentially alienating qualities of an actual piece. And if we live in an environment where the vast majority of the culture that you see each day is optimized to appeal to the most people, to entertain, and to ingratiate, it's possible that being alienating becomes the way to be taken seriously. Getting back to that Annie Albers quote, after a little inventive Googling, I did track down where it came from originally. It comes from a 1968 interview with Albers for the Smithsonian's Archives of American Art. She's being asked about the value of craft. She says that she thinks that a lot of the late abstract expressionist painters, the people working in the style that had dominated U.S. art at that time, were trying too hard to go for psychodrama and seriousness. She said this, 
there's this too conscious searching of your soul, which very often turns just into this kind of intestinal painting. And intestinal painting is a great phrase that I'm going to have to remember to quote somewhere myself. But that's what Albers is drawing a contrast to when she says in her full quote, I have this very what you call today square idea that art is something that makes you breathe with a different kind of happiness. The focused on angst as importance can distract from the pleasures that make art fundamentally valuable. She adds just after, I find art is something that gives you something that you need for your life. It's a simple definition but it means that the kind of happiness Albers is talking about isn't necessarily about art that just shows you happy things, obviously, though I suppose it can be that too. It can just be the happiness of an idea finding its exact right form. And I know this has been a long introduction, but that's because we're doing something experimental today. Artnet News is an art website, of course, and we cover a lot of the stories around the art, controversies and personalities and so on. And the art news is almost always, by definition, about heavy matters. So we just thought that taking a few of our writers away from their busy work on the news and asking them to tell us about a specific artwork that delights them and asking them to unpack why was maybe a way of focusing on what makes it all worthwhile in the first place. I'm Jo Lawson-Tancred, news reporter for Artnet based in London. The work I picked is an 18th century English caricature called The Macaroni, a real character at the late masquerade, by a mezzotint engraver called Philip Dorr. It's in the British Museum. I can't remember a time when I haven't loved satirical prints from the 18th century, which is by far my favourite century. They never hold back when it comes to skewering their subject, and they speak to all the social anxieties of the day some of which now feel absurdly outdated, and others not so much. I love the historical insight. It feels much more human than the list of dates. And while it may not be very admirable, it's entertaining to me that we are as fond of caricature and satire today as we ever were. The black and white cartoon from 1773 is of a man in a very fancy elaborate outfit in a comically tall white wig with a tiny hat balanced on top. He is in a very sumptuous interior next to a dressing table, and this furniture and the man's delicate, swaying, tiptoed pose heavily imply more stereotypically feminine attributes. He looks right at us with a sort of smug, simpering smirk, and the way he seems almost in on the joke and like he's trying to provoke us is what makes the image so engaging to me. There are many prints like this one, The male figures were known as macaroni, a pejorative term which was generally used to describe men who were usually upper class, extravagant in our spending and excessively obsessed with fashion and appearances. Probably quite affected, but perhaps also prone to gambling, spending all day at their gentleman's club, dining and drinking and living the high life. Certainly, the perceived effeminacy of these men was usually highlighted, which obviously back then would have been seen as a bad thing. It speaks to growing anxieties about class, consumerism, morality and nationalism in Georgian England at the time. Society was believed to be in a state of moral decline and it was thought to be becoming far too superficial. At that time, wealthy young men were sent on opulent grand tours around Europe and this print seems to imply they would come back, if anything, overly cultured, too fashionable 
and too influenced by French mannerisms. There had been a long history of tension between France and England, and in the 1770s, the Anglo-French War broke out. Some of the macaroni prints go so far as to imply that France was intentionally taking England's strong, manly men and using the fashions of the day to turn them into defenseless, effeminate versions as a kind of military tactic of sabotage. As someone who is all for effeminacy, it's amusing to me that it would be considered such a threat to the nation. I delight in all the more frivolous aspects of 18th century culture and love the idea of these overdressed young aristocrats toppling out of a carriage and into the theatre, or heading off to a ball. What brings me joy is the whole aesthetic of it. I should add that I can definitely see why, if I was living at that time, these characters would be much less endearing, given how out of touch and entitled they must have seemed. This is a classic example of the genre of the macaroni print. Every element is slightly exaggerated to comic effect, but I think it just gets the balance right. It never goes too over the top or becomes too ridiculous, which I think immediately ruins good satire. And there remains something believable about this character. You can imagine the viewers immediately recognizing him. Perhaps they saw him occupy a box at the theater last night or strut by them on the street to get into their carriage. I'm Eileen Kinsella, and I'm senior market reporter at Artnet News. So for a work of art that brought me joy this year, I chose Edward Manet's painting, The Balcony. It's from 1868-69. It was a piece that I had never seen before, and I was walking through the uh, Manet Degas show at the Met, and it kind of stopped me in my tracks just because I was so curious about the story behind it. It's these three figures sitting on a balcony, these beautiful green shutter doors on each side, One woman is seated and looking over, another is standing just to her, I guess, to her left, and a gentleman behind. And I just immediately thought I was wrong for finding it so curious and thought there must be some story behind it. And I immediately assumed that they were like watching a parade or something. But it was the description that I almost found as equally compelling as the picture itself, because it was described as three friends of Monet, including the painter Berth Morisot and another friend of his, a landscape artist named Antoine Guillemet and a violinist named Fanny Klaus, who were his friends that he had all modeled for the painting. And I didn't even know until I read the description that his nephew is this kind of shadowy figure in the back. He's the fourth figure, but he's sort of turning away. And it's like, why did he even include him? And then when I read the description, I also just felt kind of validated where he said the figures appear frozen and detached, trapped behind the balcony railing and the liminal space between the public street and the private interior of the dark room beyond. And I just thought it was so funny that there was no description of them even watching something. I assumed that there was something going on in the street that they were sort of spectating at. But the fact that they were just sitting there and posing like this struck me as very curious, but I just found it so compelling. There was something about, I think, the space, the interior space, the dark inside and the light outside and the very formal quality of these figures and what their relation is to each other. And there was a line at the end, when Berth Morisot saw it at the 1869 Salon, she wrote that it gave her, quote, the impression of some wild fruit, a bit unripe, even. She said, I look more strange than ugly. So that's my choice. I don't know why exactly it gives me so much joy, but there's just something very compelling about the colors, the shades, and the whole setup. And it just looks like this frozen moment in time that made me want to know more about it. 
I'm Annika Olson, and I'm the Marketplace Editor here at Artnet. And the work I chose for this is a painting by Finnish artist Albert Edelfelt titled Boys Playing on the Shore. It's in the collection of the Ateneum in Helsinki, Finland, and I first encountered the painting in the museum's retrospective exhibition of Edelfelt this past summer. The work was made in 1884, and it depicts three little boys playing on the shoreline with toy boats. The boy closest to the viewer has his back to us, and he has rolled his pant legs up to avoid them getting wet. The other two children are balanced on rocks, one holding a toy boat and the other, crouching, is maneuvering another toy boat already in the water with a stick. In the distant background of the image, there is sunlight reflecting blindingly on the lake or sea, and several full-size boats, such as a cargo ship and a schooner, which at a distance appear similar in size pictorially as the toy boats. The entire composition is rendered in these earthy, organic tones, and it's executed in an Impressionist style. Edelfelt was known to paint on plein air or outside, and the sense of immediacy can really be felt in the work. What drew me to this painting and what sparks happiness is just how unburdened and untroubled it is. Despite being made over a century ago, it has the same carefree feeling as any summer snapshot taken since. The children are engrossed in their play and with their toy boats, completely unaware or unconcerned with being observed. The landscape is calm and even, and standing before the painting, it offers a sense of respite or pause. It seems to imply that worries and concerns are for another day. There are perhaps other works by Edelfelt or any other artist for that matter that more directly approach ideas around happiness or joy. But for me, there's something to be said for the simplicity and humbleness of boys playing on the shore. And that's why I chose this work specifically. Hi, I'm Verity Babs. I'm an art writer and contributor to Artnet News. The work I've chosen is William Holman Hunt's 1853 painting, The Light of the World, which is hung in the side chapel of Keble College, Oxford. This feels like a potentially odd choice from an atheist because the painting is an allegorical depiction of Jesus taken from Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus stands at a door which is overgrown with ivy and which can only be opened from the inside as it has no handle. Almost bare trees in the background and fallen fruit and leaves on the ground let us know that this is autumn. He's holding a lit lantern and the warm glow that pours from it illuminates him from a deep green early dawn. It's said that it took Holman Hunt so long to complete the painting because he wanted to perfectly capture this moment just before the sunrise. It's classically pre-Raphaelite in style, Jesus' robe is heavily decorated and the lantern is ornate with clear influence taken from Holman Hunt's travels in the Middle East. This artwork brings me joy because near to it in the chapel is a button that, when you press it, illuminates the painting, making the gold leaf shine, and I just think it's a really fun idea. It's satisfying watching the painting change after you press the button, and I think that it shows that we can be creative in the way that we hang and display older artworks. It really brings this piece to life almost in the same way that bringing a lit candle up close to paintings with gold leaf on it would have brought the colours to life in places of worship in the Middle Ages. 
I'm Ben Davis. I'm the National Art Critic at Artnet. The work I picked is by an artist named Kano Masanobu. It's called Bodhidharma in Red Robes. It's from late 15th century Japan, and it's in the Met Museum's East Asian Galleries. This is a hanging scroll. There's a border at the top with gold leaf butterflies and flowers that lets you know that what you're looking at is something special, but mainly it's just this great bust-length portrait against an empty background of this very grizzled-looking man. The colors are very muted. It's an ink drawing with just a little bit of color to set the main figure and his robes off from the background. So what stopped me when I first came on this picture at the Met, the first thing I noticed are his big, haunted eyes. He's kind of giving you the side eye, like he's not sure about you. He's got heavy, frowny, wispy eyebrows. He's got a five o'clock shadow. His hair is kind of scruffy. I honestly am not an expert in this type of art. I know from doing a little research afterwards that the figure here, Bodhidharma, is a legendary monk. He's the father of both Zen and Kung Fu, actually, so he casts a pretty long shadow. There's even a myth that he was so committed to meditating that he cut off his own eyelids to keep awake, and where he threw them down, a tea plant grew, and that's the origin of tea. I guess that's why Bodhidharma is often depicted with these big eyes. And it's also the mythical explanation for why tea is supposed to keep you awake, incidentally. I love learning stuff like that. That makes me happy. I didn't know any of that when I first saw this painting. So why does this picture of a grump make me so happy? Well, I love how vivid the image is. It's of this larger-than-life figure, but it just really looks like a real person who's had a hard day, who's got a lot on his mind. It looks like someone who hasn't had his coffee yet. There's one other thing that tickles me about this artwork. The text around it at the Met says that it embodies Bodhidharma's message, look within to become a Buddha. But this guy doesn't look to me like he's looking within. He's definitely looking out at you. And he doesn't look like he's found some state of detachment. He's really right there, kind of scowling at me. And I was thinking about this afterwards because this work was stuck in my head. And I suddenly had the thought, maybe that paradox is what this work is about. Maybe this artwork is almost like a Zen riddle itself that's supposed to shake you out of certainty. Maybe this artwork is kind of saying, you don't know what enlightenment is going to look like. It could look like the opposite of what you think it looks like. I don't know. That's my contemporary way of reading this work, but I do find something pretty wonderful in that thought. And that's why I chose Bodhidharma in red robes. I'm Devorah Lauder, an art writer and contributor to Artnet News. I first saw Gustav Klimt's oil painting, The Black Feather Hat, made in 1910, at an exhibit of Austrian art at the Neue Gallery in early 2020, right before the world basically shut down for COVID. A large print of it now hangs in my room, 
So I look at this painting every day. And not only do I never tire of it, I still find myself discovering new things that I love about it. I should note that the painting is owned by Ronald Lauder, no relation to me. He actually recently restituted it to relatives of its former owners who were forced to escape Nazi persecution. And then he repurchased it from them earlier this year. The portrait differs from Klimt's famous golden works with symbolic decorative elements. And it's made with more simplified, almost abstract, uneven color blocks. The background, the woman's dress and her skin are all painted in an icy white or cream, which is built up using visible layers of cold lavenders, blues and pinks that are brushed in rough expressionist strokes. And almost the way Rothko brings two planes of color together, Klimt contrasts this wintry expressionist field with another large area of color, the woman's massive black feather hat, or as I see it, a kind of sculptural crowning blob that feels like it could carry the weight of the world. The woman balances this hat on her loose, thick, chestnut-colored bun, and she sits, leaning with her chin resting on her exaggeratedly angular fingers and slim arm. It's a figurative style that brings Egon Schiele to mind, but you could also compare her pose to Rodin's The Thinker, though a far less muscular and, I'd argue, less bumbling version in comparison. Instead, this woman has a lithe fragility to her that Klimt has wielded to reveal a kind of piercing strength. In fact, despite her pensive pose, she is not passive, nor particularly sad or melancholy. She seems determined, actively leaning into her thoughts. Her eyes settle slightly downwards and to the right, and she is unbothered by the artist's gaze or anyone else's for that matter. Her dark, thin brows are also reflected in her similarly dark, side-turned eyes and thin, closed lips. There is an astuteness about her, both in her formal or physical representation and in her lone kind of thoughtfulness that I find to be incredibly heartening and even a source of strength when faced with my own self-doubts. For these reasons and others, Klimt's portraits of women were considered unconventional at the time he made them, and he was definitely widely criticized for it. But thankfully for us, that never deterred him. Hi, I'm Vivian Chow, the London correspondent for Artnet News. The work I've chosen is called Painting of Change, a painting series by Japanese artist Tetsuo Miyajima. Miyajima is best known for his sculptures and installations that employ digital LED counters. But in this painting series, which I first saw at his solo exhibition titled Art and You at Listen Gallery in London in early 2022, Miyajima transformed these digital counters into analog. The artist adapted the digital display into minimalistic paintings of numbers with each digit made of seven panels in different colors, hung in the exact same style as how a number is displayed in a digital counter. Like his other installations, the digit featured in Painting of Change can change too, 
but the change must be done manually. During my visit, I had to roll a specially designed die, and the outcome dictated how the painting was going to change. I picked the painting that had the number nine on display. I rolled the die, and I got one. Then the gallery staff took four panels off the wall and changed the display from nine to one. The number cycle from one to nine symbolizes the cycle of life that never stops. The beginning is the end, and the end is the beginning. Death comes with rebirth, and phoenix rises from the ashes. Change is an integral part of the life cycle, and a lot of the times, it's out of our control. This is what the work has taught me. In this work, I find peace and solace, which brings me joy, even just for a fleeting moment. I'm Kay Brown, and I'm senior editor at Artnet News, and I've chosen Pipilotti wrists. Ever is Overall, a work from 1997 that was presented at the 47th Venice Biennial that year. This is a work by the Swiss artist Pipilotti Rist. It's a video work, and it comes in an edition of three with an artist proof. So it's in the collection of MoMA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, and the National Museum of Modern Art in Kyoto. I actually don't remember the first time I've seen it. I've seen it in a few different contexts over the years. But it feels like I've known it forever. It's sort of a work that's always stuck with me, and I think of it often. So let me describe it. This is a work of a formal beauty, and it's full of surprises. It's a short looping video that consists of two overlapping projections. On one side, you see this psychedelic close-up of tropical flowers in a field. It's this zoomed-in, very sensual footage of these natural plants. On the other side is a woman walking down a nondescript European street with one of these large flowers in her hand. It seems regular enough, but the first thing that you find striking is that the woman is dressed like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. She's got these red sparkly shoes, and she's in a blue dress, and she's totally girlified. She represents the young female in unequivocal terms in this film. And she's walking and smiling and striding with a real sense of confidence and pleasure. There's a soundtrack playing, a sort of low hum, and this gentle but like lulling beat. And there's a sense of anticipation being built by the music, which is quite eerie but also enchanting. And you're entranced by her, really. And you're at eye level with her and you're walking backwards because, you know, she's walking towards you and you're sort of walking away the entire time, at least from the perspective of the camera. And you're, you're wondering, like, where is she coming from? Where is this going? And then it begins. Her flower metamorphosizes right in front of your eyes, so to speak, and it becomes a weapon. She starts smashing the windows of cars on this quiet, nondescript street with this flower stalk. And the glass breaking shoots through the room and she's swinging her stalk in the air, and suddenly the stakes of the video have totally changed. There's people on the street, of course. It sort of looks otherwise like a regular day, and a man walks by and looks at her. Passerbys come and go, somewhat unengaged, or at least unwilling to engage. But another central figure emerges. There's a police officer in the distance behind her, walking in the same direction as her, sort of catching up. When this person comes close enough, you realize that it's a woman, 
And she tips her hat and gives a warm hello to our main character and keeps on going. This character's happiness is teetering on hysteria, but we understand her because she stands in, as I mentioned before, for this young girl, this universal figure, and she's having this really cathartic moment in front of us. She's breaking her contract with societal norms, and she's beginning to become violent, and we're watching, and we don't know why she's angry. We can project all kinds of reasons onto her, but in the end, it doesn't actually matter because we just understand the rebellion. The humming of the film lulls us, and the scene as public vandalism and transgression manages not to tip over into a hectic moment, but stays in this kind of trance-like state, and we stay as allies with her. And then the film fades out on those very same flowers in the field. I love this work. It's sensuous. It's almost erotic in a way. It transcends language and time. There's no words in the film. And it doesn't really need a theory as a leg to stand on. It really just stands on its own. The colors of it are extremely pronounced. There's a strong pops of red. It's washed in blue and green. And then there's these orange yellow flowers. And it's just oddly beautiful in a way that I've never really forgotten. And even though it has this 1990s aesthetic, it's got this permanent sense of relevance to it. It's got this feeling that I think is also quite universal, which is just, screw you, screw this. And in an interview that Rist had speaking about this film, she, in her way, also doesn't give easy answers to her work, and her work is incredibly open-ended. But she does say that she was given a carte blanche for a magazine shoot, and she wanted to have a photo of an older woman on the cover, but the person who had invited her to make this magazine said no, and that this video work was somehow a reaction to that experience. So, It poses the question then, what are you going to do with the mad that you feel? What are you going to do when you feel that something happened to you that's unfair? That charged sentiment of anger and the triumph of what you decide is something that we're all familiar with, even if it's in totally different ways, at different scales, and even if none of us have ever committed an act of vandalism, you know, flashes of thoughts have certainly happened to some extent. And that is really the essence of this work. It's that question. And then the flower reminds us that that question and that urge is is natural. And in a sense, like I think the success of Ever is Overall is that it manages to speak to feminism very directly, but it also reaches beyond it as well when it speaks about just anger and the need for catharsis. And, you know, as I mentioned before, Riss is very open-ended with this. It's an unfinished sentence. And in that sense, you can finish it however you need to. My name is Caroline Goldstein, and I am the Acting Managing Editor at Artnet. A work that brings me an endless supply of joy is one that will be familiar to many art lovers. It's Florine Stettheimer's Cathedrals of Art from 1942, a monumentally scaled painting created as part of a series spotlighting the cultural, societal, and economic hubs of New York. It also includes works dedicated to Wall Street, Broadway, and Fifth Avenue. And they are all love letters to Stettheimer's beloved city, which is my beloved city now, too. I first encountered this work as a reproduction in a book, but there's nothing quite like seeing it in the flesh at the Metropolitan Museum's Fifth Avenue location. The composition is dynamic, with characters including artists, tuxedo-clad waiters, and fabulous socialites flitting about the entirety of the canvas, which features nods to the city's most august museums, including the Museum of Modern Art, the Met itself, and the Whitney Museum of American Art, plus reproductions of famous works by Picasso and Rousseau. 
The center of the work is dominated by a red carpet rolled out over a marble staircase, and a gleaming chandelier casts an ethereal glow over the scene of earthly delights. What strikes me most about the work is the joviality. You can practically hear music playing from the canvas itself, and it's painted in soft colors of pink, green, and yellow that to me evoke Rococo paintings like Watteau's fantastical pilgrimage to Cythera. This image is a visual representation of what I always imagined the art world in New York to be, rightly or wrongly, a sort of frothy fever dream of theater, glamor, and intellect. One of the best parts, too, is that there are endless insider references to cultural figures and philosophies of the time. And here I have to nod to my friend and colleague Katie White, who's written beautifully about the work for Artnet News. Stettheimer drew inspiration for the work from religious altarpieces, and I know that I'm not alone in feeling drawn to worship at these famed cathedrals of New York City. Thank you for sticking with us for this experiment. It makes me happy just to see how many different places people's minds go all by itself. I hope you feel the same. That's it for this week. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also take a moment to rate and review us. Heck, you can tell us what artwork you like there. And as a side effect, it helps other listeners discover what we're doing, which is great. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening. See you next week.